no surprise here, I want to start with a confession. Uh, my sophomore year in college, I was pretty foolish. Uh, this uh, works itself out in several different ways, but one of them, uh, one of the queerest ways, was a bet I made with a classmate named Stacy. My sophomore year in college, I desperately needed a 100-level PE class, and swim conditioning fit into my schedule perfectly. So I was sitting right beside Stacy, and I, was, uh, I decided to register for it, and she stopped me, and she said, Jordan, there's absolutely no way that you can pass swim conditioning. And if you wanted to at state, you could take every P, uh, uh, P class, either pass or fail. So all I needed was a 70. So I was like, I'm confident I can pass this class. I told Stacy, I said, you're a nut. I can swim. And she said, yeah, you can swim to live, but you can't swim for exercise, right? And I was like, I can do this, I'm 100% sure. So I set out to prove Stacy wrong, and uh, I registered for P104, and I went to the first class on a Tuesday. And on a Tuesday, the coach sits in front of everybody, we're sitting up beside the pool, and he says, it's Tuesday, he's going through orientation. He says, on Thursday, we're gonna swim the quarter mile. And um, to pass that class, you need to, you need to uh, swim the quarter mile within 10 minutes, right? And uh, that Wednesday, I wanted to go test myself. So it's Tuesday, quarter mile, uh, within 10 minutes, 450 yards, and you're good to go. And then uh, we're gonna do that on Thursday. I wanted to go test myself on Wednesday. So this is what I did. On Wednesday, I went to the pool alone, and I'm gonna test myself. So I get there, and the pool was 50 yards. So I'm a math major. I did my math. I said, well, uh, 50 times 9 is 450. So if I swim nine laps in 450, uh, if I swim nine laps under 10 minutes, I'm good to go. So I, I start, and I'm swimming and crushing it. I mean, I'm doing the best I could ever do. And I finish in eight minutes and 51 seconds. Right, I'm good to go. 10 minutes passes. All I need is eight minutes, 51 seconds, and I'm, I'm crushing it. So I'm super arrogant. I'm texting Stacy, uh, Stacy, text, texting Stacy. That's too hard to say, and uh, making fun of her. Right, uh, I'm texting her in T9 word, capital. Uh, you are wrong. Right, Y O U space. Some of you uh, older, uh, younger folks don't know what that is. But anyway, so I get arrogant. I just swam what I'm supposed to swim on Thursday, uh, Wednesday, nine minutes. So I go buy all the swimming accessories you need. Right, I get the jammers. I got my swim cap, I got the really amazing goggles, and I go in on Thursday, I'm cracking my neck, I'm warming up, I'm thinking, I'm doing my Michael Phelps, right, the warm-ups, to get ready to go, and uh, I'm on the diving block, true story, and the coach says, all right, students, 18 laps down and back, and everybody jumps in, but I'm st I stay on the little block, and I turn around, I'm like, coach, uh, I don't want to embarrass you in front of everybody, but... It's 450 yards is a quarter mile. And he says, yeah. I was like, well, the pool's 50 yards. He's like, the pool's 25 yards. So if you're tracking with me, and if I've explained this well, I'd swam half of it in eight minutes and 51 seconds the day before. And for some reason, I don't know if it was delusional or what, I was like, you could probably do it twice as fast. <laughs> so I jumped in, and for the next 23 minutes, I drug my body through that water like a John Deere tractor. Just back and forth, and everybody was done in under 10 minutes because they had swam for exercise before, and it was utterly and totally humiliating uh, for me. I don't even know how I finished. I should have got out of the pool, but I got to the end. My upper body, I guess because I wasn't using my legs, was as tight as it's ever been, and the coach bent down, and he said, Penley, you might want to consider. I was like, just let me get out of the pool, <laughs> and I ran back to my dorm room, and I dropped the class. Anyway, why did I tell that story? Why I tell that story is because it humbled me, Right? And in this passage today, we're going to talk about how Jesus humbled himself, and it's a completely different humility, right? Uh, my humility wasn't chosen. 
um, it came upon me. But Jesus's was, right? Uh, Jesus was a, a humility uh, that he, he did himself by emptying himself, as we'll see in today's passage. And today's passage is particularly amazing, and I really mean that. I feel like I say that about every sermon and every, uh, not, not every sermon is particularly amazing, but every passage is. But this one's really, really, really good. Right, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for us, but throughout church history, this uh, passage has held a special place due to the magnitude of the content that's inside of it. Right, just two points this morning, uh, and we're only gonna be able to cover verses six to 11, because uh, I want to be a little shorter due to our family-friendly f- service. Um, the two points are this. Uh, Jesus uh, is a humble servant, uh, and then secondly, Jesus is the exalted uh, king. But a quick intro before we hop into the passage. Uh, this passage is of, often referred to as the Christ hymn, uh, H-Y-M-N. And that's because uh, it's a, such a significant portion of scripture. First, church historians tell us that the early church would um, use this portion of scripture to recite out loud in a service just like this one. Right? They would read it aloud together on Sundays. Similar to how we do um, maybe liturgical elements or prayers or even if you... Um, Think of the, the, in the original language, it had a very rhythmic cadence. So think of your, your college fight song, right? Or even the Pledge of Allegiance, right? This is something that was written to be publicly repeated. Uh, so much so that one translation uh, of the Bible does something really cool. My, actually, my seminary professor uh, was on the translation team uh, for, for this translation. The ISV translates the, the Christ hymn rhyming. Check this out. I thought this was so cool. Uh, this is the same passage that we're in this morning. In God's own form he existed he and shared with God equality, deemed nothing needed grasping. Instead, poured out in emptiness a servant's form he did possess, a mortal man becoming. In human form he chose to be and lived in all humility, death on a cross obeying. Now lifted up by God to heaven, a name above all others given, the matchless name possessing. And so when Jesus' name is called, the knees of every one should fall wherever they're residing. Then every tongue in one accord will say what Jesus uh, We'll say that Jesus, the Christ is Lord, while God the Father praising. So you get the idea of Philippians chapter 2, 5 to 11, right? It, uh, it, it's always meant and intended to be, to be read and memorized publicly. In addition to that, uh, Paul, uh, this passage rather, also tells us a lot of key things about Jesus' nature. So questions like, is Jesus fully God? Is Jesus fully man? Did Jesus become human uh, or um, when he came to earth? Or was, was he always human? Uh, was Jesus always God? Or did he cease to be God when he came to earth? All of these questions are answered in this passage. And this passage was instrumental to the early church for clarifying these questions, right? And defining these questions around the nature of Jesus. This happened uh, most predominantly at the Council of Chalcedon in uh, 4, 451 AD. And there, the early church provided the clarity about Jesus to these questions that we need, right? God the Son took upon himself a real human nature through the incarnation. And this council affirmed that Jesus was truly man and truly God and that his two, the two natures of Christ are so, so united as to be without mixture or confusion or separation or division. Or simply put, as I can put it for you, the historical statement of orthodoxy around who Jesus is is this. Christ is two natures united in one person forever. Two natures united in one person forever. So to summarize, this is a significant portion of scripture because of the weight and breadth of uh, the theological doctrine that it covers. And in this small portion of scripture, we have Jesus' preexistence, his humanity, his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of God. And for each of those incredibly important doctrines, I've got about two and a half minutes to cover. So we better get started. All right, first thing first, uh, Jesus the humble servant, right? To understand the magnitude of who Jesus is and what he did for us, 
We have to primarily understand that Jesus is divine, right, that Jesus is God, or else his humility isn't that impressive. You know, this isn't a perfect illustration, and, uh, you know, not all of mine are the best, but I was, I was thinking about how to, you know, exemplify how God, uh, or Jesus was humble in his incarnation and uh, him, his becoming human. So this is what I came up with. Hypothetically, say I'm trying to get a job at a cake shop, and for my interview, they asked me to make a cake that looks like SpongeBob. Well, when I'm done, this is what the cake looks like. So if the boss come to me and said, hey, I don't know if you're quite ready to be a cake maker at this shop. How about you like sweep floors and mop the tables, or, or you don't do that, uh, sweep the floors, um, mop the floors, and maybe run the cashier for a couple years, and then we'll see if you work up to becoming a, a cake maker. But uh, say I, I uh, showed you this one for my interview, a really great uh, cake picture, right? And then that same boss said, actually, I just want you to sweep floors. Right, that would be true humility because I'm a master cake baker. And, and what I'm trying to pierce together here is Jesus becoming man is incredibly humbling because he was and is God. Right, that's exactly where Paul begins in verse six where he says um, that Jesus was existing in the form of God. Right, this is evidence of Jesus' divinity. And we know this for several reasons, but in this passage, we know that Paul is saying that Jesus is divine because Paul says Jesus was in the form of God. If Jesus were only human, Paul would have said that Jesus was in the image of God, right? You remember that from Genesis chapter one, verse 27. That's the way the Bible always describes human beings. They are made in the image of God. But Paul says that Jesus is, is in the form of God. And if, and if in the form of God does not mean that Jesus was divine, that he was God, then what in the world are we to make of all the other different places in scripture uh, where Jesus reveals his divinity? You know, a couple of examples. In Mark chapter two, Jesus forgives sin. Right, they, come, the, they bring this guy to Jesus, he can't uh, walk, and um, he tells them to get up miraculously, and he also says, your sins are forgiven. And they look at Jesus and they're like, who can forgive sins but God alone? And then they pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy because he's claiming to be God through forgiving sins. Or what about John chapter nine, where Jesus uh, with uh, Lazarus, right, he, he raises him from the dead with two words. Right, Lazarus has been dead for three days. He comes to him, he says, come forth and a dead man is uh, raised. Now Jesus is uh, exercising his divinity. What about John chapter nine where Jesus heals a blind man? Or Matthew chapter eight where uh, Jesus is asleep on the boat, right, and the, the storm comes and the waves are going nuts and he wakes up and with one word, creation listens to him. Like the winds and the, the waves obey Jesus. Or in Matthew 28 where Jesus accepts worship. Or in Exodus chapter three where Moses, he asks God, uh, what is your name, God? And God tells Moses, I am. And then in John chapter eight, verse 58, uh, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And then the Pharisees again pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy. And even though Jesus was divine here on earth, look back at verse six. He did not count equality with God, something to be exploited. Well, simply put, Jesus was not gonna use his uh, divinity on earth for his own advantage, Right, again, pointing to Jesus' divinity, Paul says that Jesus isn't gonna make use of his divine power in order to aid him to live a faithful and obedient life to his Father. You know, the best uh, illustration I, I could think of for this is two movies. If you're a geriatric millennial like me, you think of Matilda, right? Matilda's this story where, uh, yeah, I haven't watched the movie in years, but she's got like these magical powers and she'll use them to her advantage all the time, right? Pouring milk for herself. I think it's Mr. Mrs. Uh, Crunchball or something like that, and she's like terrorizing her, all that stuff. If you're a younger millennial, 
than you know of Harry Potter. Well, everybody knows about Harry Potter. Not everybody knows about Matilda. And the scene that I thought of with Harry Potter is when he's with his aunt and uncle. I think it's his aunt and uncle. It's in like one or two. And uh, he, he, he inflates her, right? And she floats away, right? He's using his powers uh, for his own advantage. And Jesus isn't like Matilda or Harry Potter. You didn't think you'd ever hear that in a sermon, but you did this morning. And a great example of that uh, comes to his arrest. This is a perfect example of Jesus not using his uh, divinity, um, what the passage says, as something to be exploited. Right, in Matthew 26, if you recall, a Judas comes to arrest Jesus. And if you recall from the, from the story, impulsive Peter, what's he do? Right, he takes out a sword and he slices off one of the guard's ears. But listen to what Jesus says uh, to Peter. Put your sword back in its place. For all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think, listen to this in, in verse 53. Do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he would at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Right, remarkably, Jesus in his humanity did not use his divinity as a means of protection or comfort or pleasure as he walked with God here on earth. Right, it was not something to be grasped, the ESV says, or to be kept or to be exploited, the CSB says, for his own advantage or benefit. Instead of using his divinity as an advantage, what did he do? He emptied himself, verse seven says. Instead, he emptied himself. Emptied himself here does not mean that Jesus stopped being divine, that he ceased being God, but rather that Jesus poured out himself uh, for us by giving us uh, his, uh, giving up, rather, giving up his privileges as the son of God to come and save us and give us an example of how to honor God the Father. How did he do this? Well, verse seven tells us, by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, Right, Jesus became a human. You know, theologians call this the incarnation. And in uh, John chapter one, verse 14, uh, the Bible says that Jesus, uh, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, the Greek word here literally means Jesus camped with us. Like he pitched his tent with us. And we see this throughout the scriptures as well, Jesus' humanity. In Matthew chapter one, the son of God, who's always existed from eternity past, had perfect fellowship with the father. He becomes a human infant, Right, in Luke chapter two, uh, the Bible tells us that Jesus grew up. That means he was short and he grew in stature, right? He was fully human. In John chapter 19, Jesus was thirsty. In, Luke, uh, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus got hungry. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus weeps over the state of a city. In John chapter four, Jesus gets tired and needs a nap. Right, in John chapter 11, Jesus mourns the loss of a, uh, of a beloved friend. Right, Jesus was fully human. And I mean, in all the ways um, that a, a, a truly human person experiences life, right? Uh, things like a stomach ache. You know, this, is, this isn't in the Bible, but we can safely assume, um, since Jesus was fully man, that he had a stomach ache, that he had a toothache, that he had splinters, a bad lunch, hot days, cold nights, disappointments, and sickness. Jesus left all of perfection in eternity with no, no tears, no mourning, no splinters, no stomach aches, no suffering, and came to, uh, to earth for us. Right, he went through all this for us. So why did Jesus uh, have to become human? It'd be a great question if, you, if you're thinking that. Well, first, uh, Jesus gives us an accurate uh, picture of what it means uh, to be uh, truly human. Right, some people say that to be human is to err, to be human is to make mistakes, and that's not true. Right? All humans do make mistakes, all humans do err, but Jesus shows us what humans are supposed to be. Right? To be truly human is to walk with God, to love him, to cherish him, to spend time with him, to obey him. 
And in Jesus, we see what Adam, the first human in Genesis chapter one, uh, what, we see what he was created to do but failed to experience because of sin. Right, where the first Adam fell, failed in Genesis chapter one, uh, Jesus prevailed and showed us what it means to be a human here on earth. And because of this, Hebrews 4.15 tells us, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet lived without sin. Right, another reason that Jesus uh, became human is so that everybody in this room could know that he knows. Right, he knows what you're going through. Right, he knows your suffering. He knows your disappointment. And he came to earth to prove his love for you so that you and I and everyone else know that he knows what you're going through in the midst of this hard and difficult life. You're never alone, according to Christianity. You know, I got an email this week from uh, one of our regular attendees. They had a phenomenal question in it from last week's sermon. He asked, what do I tell doubters and seekers when they see that the Bible promises suffering? Won't, they not wanna won't, won't that make them not wanna follow Jesus? And I responded, possibly. But in my response, I also said and asked, what worldview provides uh, no suffering? Right? What, what worldview guarantees you that you will never suffer? And I don't, I don't think there is one. The difference with Christianity is that uh, Christianity offers you hope in the midst of suffering. I love how Alistair Begg uh, says it. Uh, Christianity introduces us not to a God on a deck chair, but to a God on a cross who understands rejection, who understands pain, who understands grief at its deepest level. Jesus knows Right, he came here to earth and experienced every temptation we've experienced, every pain we've experienced, and he knows what we're going through. And in the midst of that, you have a high priest who's able to sympathize and empathize with you in the midst of suffering. And lastly, in this humanity, Jesus provides what we owe to God. Two things, a perfect life of obedience, uh, which none of us in this room, myself at the forefront, did not uh, provide because we disobey God. And secondly, uh, a substitutionary death in our place, which brings us to verse eight. Look back at your Bibles. Verse eight says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right, and in this passage, we see three dissensions. This is really cool from a, a commentary I read this week. You see three dissensions. The first is that uh, Jesus uh, goes from heaven to earth, one, and then earth to a servant, two, and then a servant to a criminal's death, three. Right, it's not, so it's not just that he left heaven and came to earth. He could have came as a king or a ruler or a prince or someone who has comfort and luxuries, but rather he came as a servant. And, and then coming as a servant, he could have came as a servant who just lived a life and had a really dignified death. But that's not the case at all, right? He actually uh, comes, lives as a servant, and then dies a criminal's death for a sin that he did not commit. And why? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, for you and for me. Right, Jesus had to be human in order to make payment for our disobedience because of our sin through his death by crucifixion. Right, our disobedience before an infinitely holy God is infinitely offensive to him. Therefore, we need an infinite and eternal payment for our infinite debt. And this is what Jesus did. 1 Peter 3.18, one of my favorite Bible verses, says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Right, Jesus became human to restore your relationship to the Father. Right, Jesus became human to restore us to him so we could know him and walk with him and treasure him. What we lost in Adam and Eve in the garden, Jesus came to restore. Further, uh, Jesus' death is necessary to reveal both the justice and the love of God. You know, we touched on this a little bit last week in last week's uh, sermon, but remember, God is both just and loving. 
right? Depending on your uh, age or your background or your inclinations, you may uh, tend to think that God is only loving and would never bring justice upon someone. Or another may believe that God is only just and would never forgive the worst sinner that we can think of in our mind. But in Jesus, is God just? Absolutely. Look at the cross. He's pouring out all of his wrath upon his son. You know, John Piper famously said, a God will render all accounts settled in the end, either in the universe, on the cross, or in hell. No injustice will remain. So is God just? Absolutely. Look at Jesus. What, what about, is he loving though? Is God loving? Absolutely. Look at the cross. In the cross, Jesus is taking the place of anyone who will place their faith and trust in him. He takes the place of his rebellious enemies on the cross and offers forgiveness to anyone who will trust in Jesus. So again, is God just? Absolutely, look at the cross. Is he loving? Absolutely, look at the cross. So number one, Jesus is the humble servant. But secondly, we'll see the results of his obedience and faithfulness to his father in our second and last point this morning. Jesus is the exalted king. Look back at your Bibles in, uh, in verse nine. Verse nine to 11 says, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, in view of Jesus' perfect life of obedience, even to the point of death, what does God do? Well, he exalts his son. We see this uh, through two things. He gives him a glorious name and an eternal rule. A glorious name and an eternal rule. First glorious name. God exalts Jesus by giving him a name. And most theologians from my reading this week believe this to be the name Lord, which is at the very end of uh, verse 11. And Lord in the New Testament, if you tie that to the Septuagint, which is, is the Greek tes, uh, translation of the Old Testament, is equivalent to the, to, to the word Yahweh in the Old Testament. And the most striking example of this is from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. This is so cool. Look, in Isaiah 4, uh, 45, God is talking about himself. And listen to what he says about himself. Before me... Every knee will bow and every tongue will swear. And then Paul just says in verse 10 and 11, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue, verse 11, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? Jesus is God, fully God, fully man. He's the radiance of the glory of God, Hebrews tells us, in the exact imprint of his nature. And here on earth, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to his Father moment by moment, showing us, his people, uh, who, who trust in him, what it truly means to walk with him. And in light of this, God has given him his true and appropriate title, the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, he gives him an eternal rule. Right, in verse 10 of uh, this passage, Paul says that every knee will bow. Right, and bended knee implies some things, right? Uh, when you bend your knee, you're paying homage and um, uh, certainly worshiping someone. And this is another point of clarity about Jesus' divinity, right? Paul says that one day all of creation will bow and worship King Jesus, you know, from God's word, specifically in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, uh, the scriptures say that we are to worship only God. And Paul says that all creation will bow and worship King Jesus, right? Jesus first came as a humble servant, but when he returns, it will be as the exalted God and King. And all people who recognize the majesty and authority of King Jesus, verse 10 says, they will confess uh, with their mouth and, and, and everyone who doesn't as well. And verse 10 says that this will be true for those who are in heaven, those who are here on earth when he returns, and also those who have died. That's what uh, under the earth in verse 10 means. 
And in addition to that, every tongue will confess, right? Every person will proclaim with their mouths that Jesus truly is who he says he is, the great I am, the king of kings, the king of the universe, our Lord and Savior. And for the one who does not trust in Jesus during their life here on earth, this future confession will not be a confession of conversion, but rather an acknowledgement that Jesus was and is God and that they should have trusted him here and now. Right, Jesus is the Lord, the King of Kings. And if you're here and you haven't trusted in Jesus, today is a great day to admit your need of this humble King, receive his grace, receive his forgiveness, and begin to follow him and have your relationship with the Father restored. Right, and this invitation to follow Jesus is available to any of us, to any of us here today who may not even believe in God. Maybe you're here today and you'd say you're a doubter or a seeker or agnostic or an atheist. I'm happy to tell you that your unbelief cannot diminish the grace of God any more than a man's blindness could blot out the sun. And this is the truth. God loves you even if you don't yet love him. So I would encourage you to follow him today. So number one, Jesus is the humble servant. Two, he's the exalted king. And as always, I always like to talk a little bit about application. How do we apply this on a Monday morning? How does our Monday mornings look different because of this passage? Well, the first thing I would encourage you to do is adore Jesus. Adore Christ. Gaze at him in his word. Right? Spend time in the scriptures every day and, and see Jesus, fully God, fully man. And both of these things are for us now, secondly, I'd encourage you to imitate Christ. You know, if you're, here, if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, we should look more and more like Jesus as each day passes. Right? This is certainly not a perfect linear path, but includes ups and downs. You know, I love this diagram from an old crew resource. It was a new believer follow-up guide that shows, you know, we place our faith in Christ, and then as we mature in Christ, it's an up and down battle, right? As we're walking with God, trusting him, uh, repenting of sin, and growing in grace as we continue to read his word. So I'd ask you a couple questions. Are you living as Jesus' king? Maybe one practical thing. How, does Jesus' kingship uh, impact how we affect our roommates or our spouses as we walk with him? And then the results, the last thing this morning, the results will be uh, Philippians, 1, or, uh, Philippians 2, 1 to 4. I'm not going to read it this morning. I'll leave it for community groups for you. But if you read uh, Philippians 1, uh, 1 to 5, actually, you'll see that when Jesus is seen and worshiped as he should be, unity happens. Unity happens, right? Because we're all looking for the interests of others. We're walking with him, trusting him, uh, obeying him, and then unity occurs. And the more and more we see Jesus as fully God and fully man, and King, King of kings, Lord of lords, it will create oneness among uh, this people. Right? Seeing Jesus as he is, receiving his grace, and then allowing his grace to create unity among us. Uh, and to those ends, uh, let's pray. Father, we love you so much, and we're thankful for your word and uh, the treasure that it is. God, thanks so much for uh, the Christ hymn that tells us so much about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done for us, and uh, just grateful for the opportunity to share from this passage and encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ here. And Father, as always, um, when people come to faith in you, it's a miracle, so God, I pray you do that. I pray someone even in this room this morning who doesn't know you, who hasn't trusted in you, who hasn't followed you, uh, even in this moment, would place their faith and trust in you. Right where they're sitting, they would say, I do to Jesus and follow you the rest of the days of their life. And I pray they wouldn't keep that uh, decision, Lord, to themselves, that they would tell a community group leader, a friend, so that we could encourage them, uh, get them a Bible, other resources to help them grow. Father, I can't do that. Uh, but you can. You did it for me when I was so far from you, and I know you can do it for 
uh, individuals in this room. So for doubters and seekers, I pray they come to know you. And for followers of Jesus in the room, Father, help us mature. Help us see Jesus rightly and use our lives to glorify him. In Jesus' name, amen.